The Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, beginning in verse 26, says this. Jesus and his disciples sailed to the Gerasenes' land, which is across the lake from Galilee. As soon as Jesus got out of the boat, a certain man met him. The man was from the city and was possessed by demons. For a long time he had lived among the tombs, naked and homeless. When he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down before him, and then he shouted, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. He said this because Jesus had already commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had taken possession of him, so he would be bound with leg irons and chains and placed under guard. But he would break his restraints, and the demon would force him into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had entered him. They pleaded with Jesus not to order them to go back into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs. Jesus gave them permission, and the demons left the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the cliff into the lake and drowned. When those who tended the pigs saw what happened, they ran away and told the story in the city and in the countryside. People came to see what had happened. They, they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully dressed, completely sane. They were filled with awe. Those people who had actually seen what had happened told them how the demon-possessed man had been delivered, and then everyone gathered from the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave their area because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and returned across the lake. The man whom the demons had gone from whom the demons had gone, begged to come along with Jesus as one of his disciples, and Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell the story of what God has done for you. And so he went throughout the city, proclaiming what Jesus had done for him. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us, let us say, Thanks be to God. Today we are continuing in our Lenten journey uh, called Laid Down and Lifted Up. We're, we're taking a look at the Gospel of Luke specifically and, and in Lent, the season approaching Easter. Um, traditionally, we're, we're asked to give something up, usually something dietary. Um, but uh, the deeper purpose of that, as we've discussed, is, is not so much that we simply do these personal things for personal reasons, but that it would open ourselves up to something that is more relational, more societal, more constructive in our lives. And Luke specifically seems focused on that, on the people who are not already cared for, the people who are not in the inner circle, the outsiders, the rest of the world, so to speak. And we get to this story in chapter 8 story called the Gerasene Demoniac, and it's weird. Can we just acknowledge it up front? It's a weird story. There's these demons, and they go into pigs, and then the pigs run into the sea, and it's not the makings of a good Sunday school lesson, is it? No. Unless you really want to terrify children. I go, go to bed, honey. Um, 
<laughs> and maybe it's one of those stories that you get into and you think, I don't even know what to do with this, so I'm just going to keep reading and move on. And that would really be a tragedy, because I think Luke tells this story for a very specific reason, and I'll spoil my ending. I don't think it's a story about casting out demons, not really, not in the literal sense. I think there's something deeper going on here that Luke is inviting us to open ourselves into, that Luke is saying, you, there is so much that you could lift if you take this story seriously. So let's talk about this story. Let's talk about this weird and wild and deeply meaningful and moving story. The first thing I want to tackle is, is why we shouldn't take this story literally, or even really the Bible as a whole, literally. This story is a great example of why the Bible is not a literal, literary document. First of all, the man that's described is literally displaying signs of what today we would understand and call extreme mental health conditions or, or trauma that he's experienced previously in his life or, or ongoing trauma as he lives unhoused and naked in the tombs, this incredibly you know, dark and depressing place, especially for someone in his context. You know, in other stories of demon possession in scripture, we see people displaying signs of what we would now identify as seizures and epilepsy and things like that. We have to remember that um, the people in these days, they, they didn't have the understandings that we did. They, they didn't have medical science to be able to identify what's going on. And when we do, th this Bible was written by Luke, not envisioning a 21st century DFW with Medical City Dallas and Southwest uh, Hospital and, and Parkland and, 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 and therapists and psychiatrists. These were not concepts. And so when we characterize people with conditions like these or experiences like the ones that we see in this story as possessed or demonic, and my friends, I assure you, there are plenty of churches that still do this. The damage that comes next is extreme. It's extreme. As I said, this is written before scientific understandings of things like PTSD and epilepsy and major depression disorder, which I personally get to live with. Yay for me. It's pre-scientific people's best attempt at rationalizing extremely understanding and rationalizing extremely antisocial behavior that could be onset suddenly, and it's the best they could do. Now, I, I'm not suggesting that to um, not read the Bible literally means to then take, rationalize the Bible to this extreme where you take every ounce of supernaturalism out of it. I'm not saying that we can't uh, have an appreciation perhaps for miracles if that's a part of your faith, or we can't have an appreciation for the supernatural side of faith if that's a part of your faith. In fact, I, if you know me, you know that there's a part of me that's very open to all of that. I, I know that due to my relationships with other communities of faith, specifically communities from South Pacific Islands and, and communities from West African countries um, where, where the supernatural and mystical side of faith is, is very alive and flourishing, that it'd be, it'd be a mistake for us in our white Christian, Protestant, American uh, nature to outright deny that that's ever a possibility. So hear me say that, but here's what I am saying, that a strictly literal interpretation of the Bible is nonsensical at best and deeply dangerous at worst. I mean when I say, a strictly literal interpretation of the Bible is nonsensical at best and, and deeply dangerous at worst. First, why it's nonsensical at best. This is not the only place where the story takes place. It, the story shows up in Mark and Matthew as well. In Mark and Luke, it, it takes place in the same location, in Gerasa. In Matthew, it takes place in a different location. They're very similar names, Gadara. And in fact, if you, I think I've got a map that we could show on the screen. So those little red dots, that, that one far on the bottom there, that's Gerasa. 
And, and the one that's a little bit closer to the Sea of Galilee, that blue spot, that's Gadara. But neither of them are that top spot, which is actually on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. That's Gergesa, right? Thank you for naming your town so differently. Um, these still exist, by the way. These are places. We know where they exist. There's Gerasa, Gadara, and Gergesa. Now, if you were trying to tell the story literally, where do you think that Jesus would have crossed the Sea of Galilee and then stepped off the shore and met a man? It wouldn't have been Gerasa. He would have had to, like, get in the car and drive. That's way far down there at the end of the map. No, it's Gergesa, which isn't even named in any of the gospel accounts. But that's not the story that Luke is trying to tell. Luke is not wrapped up in the literal nature that we tend to read things in the 21st century. That's not the kind of history that the Bible tries to tell frequently. The authors of the Bible will play fast and loose with dates, times, locations, because they're trying to tell a deeper story. We'll talk later about why Gerasa is where Luke decides to place the story, and it's for a reason. And the people in Luke's day know that Gerasa doesn't sit on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, so they're not getting tripped up. As soon as he says, so Jesus stepped off the boat, walked ashore, and he was in Gerasa. No one's going, uh, hold on, hold on, Luke, here's a map, try again, bud. That's not, no, they don't, that's not the point. That's not the point. So when we read the Bible literally, it's nonsensical because the Bible disagrees with itself and it disagrees with just plain fact a lot of times. And, and that's okay because that's not the kind of text it's trying to be. But when we take the Bible literally, it can also be deeply dangerous. Because when we read about stories of demonic possession like this, and we take that in a literal direction, let me tell you a story about someone I know. So I, I, I've got a friend who lives several states away um, in one of those northern states where they own snow shovels and stuff that I don't understand. And um, he messages me on Facebook a few years ago. He says, hey, I've got this friend. She's a single mom. She's got a 14-year-old daughter who's struggling with depression. And... Um, they're looking for a new church home, and, and I'm hoping you can point me in the direction of a, a his, his words, non-crazy UMC, and um, <laughs> it's like, okay, um, and I said, I, I know plenty of churches that I would love to send my family to, where do they live, and they told me that, and I said, if you don't mind me asking, why are they looking for a new church home? There's usually a story behind that. That can help me know how to help them find a new church home. I said, well, the, they were going to United Methodist Church, and... Um, you know, the daughter, as he said, was, you know, coming to terms with the fact that um, she's struggling with depression. And, and, you know, she and her mom, she'd been going to therapy and talking to psychiatrists, doing all the things you're supposed to do, right, things you should do. The, da the daughter opens up to her youth director um, about this. And the youth director says to her, well, you know why you have depression? It's because there's a demon that's attacking you. That's why you have depression. UMC. Actually, as of two weeks ago, they're not a UMC anymore, but I guess that's <laughs> another denomination's problem. Now, I, that wasn't in my notes. Sorry. Let's move on. Um, it's, it's not funny, though, because um, I was that 14-year-old kid once, and thank God when I told my youth director how I was feeling, they didn't say that to me, because uh, I would hate to imagine what I would have done. When we wield this thing like a blunt force object, it does what blunt force objects do. And it's frequently people who are marginalized, who are suffering, who are vulnerable, who get smacked upside the head and sometimes never recover. 
So I start here, and maybe you're thinking, like, Scott, why are we spending so much time on this? And maybe that's because, thank God, you've never been in a faith community where this story was taught in such a destructive and damaging way. But I know for a fact that several of you have. And so I know you need to hear your pastor say, this is not how we treat this kind of literature. Okay? Capiche? The Bible is not strictly literal. At best, it's nonsensical when you take it that way. At worst, it's deeply dangerous. So then what is this story, Scott? What is this story if it's not meant to be simply about Jesus casting out a demon? Well, you know, the first century people, they didn't have the language we did around things like mental health or, or about other kind of health conditions that, that we do today. They didn't have the ways to diagnose and treat people the way that we do today. Thank God for that, um, that we have those options now. Um, what they did have was a very strong understanding of allegory. In fact, they were honestly much better at that than we are today. They could think and, and, and talk in metaphor and allegory in ways that we couldn't. And this story, when you get into it, is actually a really powerful allegory that begins to open up when you understand it that way. The first clue is this. When Jesus asks the name of the demon, did you notice the name the demon gives? Legion, right? And the name is Legion because... The demons were many. Well, if you're someone living in the first century, the word legion has one very specific connotation to you. Do you know what that is? It's a collection of soldiers in the Roman army. It's roughly 6,000 Roman soldiers were called a legion. They were an occupying force that would occupy the different lands and territories that these people lived in, the Jewish people, the Gentile people. They were all part of the Roman Empire, and they were very familiar with legions living in their land. That's our first clue, but when we go deeper, we see that when the man confronts Jesus, Luke uses a verb that he employs elsewhere uh, as armies meeting in battle when the man meets Jesus. It's this sort of battle imagery. And when the demon seizes the man, that's a verb that Luke uses when Christians are arrested and brought to trial. And the words for the hand and foot chains, for the binding and the guarding, those are the same ones that Luke uses in Acts, which is his sort of sequel to this book, when the disciples are imprisoned by the state. So the language of the whole story evokes the experience of living under brutal, occupying power. This is not simply about Jesus and some dude. This is about Jesus and the forces and structures and powers and principalities that are, are, that are inhabiting this land. But then it goes even further. Why does Luke choose Gerasa as the site of this? The, the region of, of Gerasa is actually the setting of a horrifying historical event in Luke's day. Luke's writing this in about 72 CE, somewhere around there, about 40 years after Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Now, according to Josephus, who was a Jewish scholar in those days, during the late 60s CE, so a few years before Luke's gospel is written, toward the end of the Jewish revolt, the Roman general Vespasian, which I believe we've got a, a bust of his, um, the Roman general Vespasian, who ended up being Caesar while Luke was writing his gospel, all right, red flag, um, sent soldiers to retake Gerasa. And in Gerasa, the Roman soldiers, the legion, killed a thousand young men, which would have been an enormous number for a city this size. They imprisoned their families, they burned their city, and then they attacked villages throughout the region. Many of those buried in the garrison tombs where the man was naked and homeless were the bodies of those whom the legion had killed. And then Jesus lets the spirit enter pigs. There's two reasons for that, perhaps. First, pigs, you may know, were considered extremely unclean by Jewish people, and so it's one way of us being reminded that they're in Gentile territory. But then, if we continue down this allegorical rabbit trail, we'll learn that one of the emblems of the Legio Tenth Fratensis, 
One of their emblems that was on their banners and coins and bricks was a pig. Why is that important? Well, it's because the 10th Pretensis participated in the siege and destruction of Jerusalem, took the lead in reconquering Palestine, and was stationed in Jerusalem after the war, the same very place where Luke is writing his gospel. So for the people of the area, pigs would have seemed a fitting destination for Legion. Legion has done this destruction in Gerasa. Legion's now come home to roost in the pigs, and Luke's telling us Jesus can send those pigs off a cliff and into the abyss. They end up running into the sea, which is the very same abyss they feared before. For the people in their day, the sea was perhaps this limitless void where monsters dwelled. And so we see Jesus is shown by Luke to, to directly confront the systems and political powers of oppression, not simply in his own days. None of this has to do with Jesus' day. This is all about Luke's contemporary day. Do you see that? But one of the contemporary day of Luke's world. So here's the beautiful thing. When we lay down a literalist understanding of the Bible and we take it seriously in the way that the authors intended, especially in Luke's gospel, we lift up a more timeless witness that has the power to speak into this very moment. Luke is saying Jesus' power was not just for his own day. Jesus' power was also to confront the, the legion in Gerasa happening 30 years after his death and resurrection. Jesus' power is to confront the legion, the, the 10th pretensis occupying Jerusalem right now in my contemporary day. I wonder what Jesus' power could do in 21st century Richardson and Dallas. When we get stuck reading this text like it's a literal history book, we miss the power it possesses for our current context because it's a timeless story. These are endless cycles, and the gospel is always relevant. And then the story continues, and the community sees this man fully dressed and completely sane, it says, and they have two reactions. First, they're amazed. Wow, look at him. And then they are seized, or the language Luke really uses, they are oppressed, seized by fear. Fear of what? What are they afraid of? I don't know. Maybe it's easier to embrace the oppression that we know rather than the freedom that we don't. Maybe we simply need someone to be bad so that we can feel safe and good and righteous as a result. I'm stepping on my own toes now. Maybe we're worried that once that bad guy is revealed to be a human being, after all, wouldn't you know it? It means that we actually have to embrace him and confront our own sin that led him to be so alone and so desperate and so overwhelmed. Now, this is where Luke begins to speak into our own context. You see, in Luke's ending, he adds this one last layer about the community and the way that they, they live with this fear underguarding everything, and it practically demands that we reread the story once again with this knowledge in mind. The, the truth is, they treated him like a monster bound, shackled in chains under guard, rather than a human being that Jesus was able to see. They were suffering as a people. Yes, they'd been ravaged by legion. And maybe the legion that was oppressing them, they laid upon this man and made him into the monster that they could put their hands on and get a handle on and feel in control of. Because once the mob is worked up and the monster is identified, the decisions become painfully easy to make. In the mid-90s, America had a significant crime problem specifically in urban environments. 
Now, I'm not a criminologist, and I'm not an expert on this area, and so if you are, let's go to coffee. You don't have to write the 14-paragraph email. I, I would love to learn from you, but I'm going to talk about this just now. I just know anytime I step into something that's not seminary-based, like, it's a possibility, okay? Um, I'm not a perfect person. The reasons, as I understand them, are still hotly debated as to why crime had gotten so bad, but they were many. People point to economic conditions and wealth inequality and ineffective health systems and education systems failing and children growing up in trauma that so often comes with poverty. And there was even this, uh, th this thought that some had that leaded water was infecting populations and leading to an increase in crime, but the bottom line was this, crime was increasing at an alarming rate. And then in 1996, Bill Clinton launched a uh, tough-on-crime tough legislative agenda, and Hillary Clinton, then the first lady before she was senator and secretary of state, Hillary Clinton, was speaking in support of their administration's legislative agenda when she said this, just as in a previous generation we had an organized effort against the mob, we need to take these people on. They are often connected to big drug cartels. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. The crime bill that would later become law would introduce things like mandatory minimum sentences, and the three-strike rule for lifetime incarceration, and a whole host of other reforms that would lead to the number of incarcerated men in America to grow from 1 million to 1.5 million, a 50% increase in just 20 years. These reforms would lead black boys and men, those same super predators described before, to be locked up six times as often as their white counterparts. Now, here's the craziest thing. Here's the deal. It had incredibly widespread support. Pre now, President Biden supported it strongly as a senator from Delaware at the time. Then, State Representative Bernie Sanders voted for its, uh, in favor of it. The Black Caucus of the House of Representatives supported it. The black mayors of major U.S. cities supported it. The whole town of Garasa was in agreement. We've got a demon problem, and we've got to lock him up. To be fair... Everyone involved that I've just named has said publicly now that they would do things differently if they'd had the chance, but it's what happened, and we have to live with that. And so 20 years go by, and we locked up a lot of boys and men, and women and girls too, and crime rates did go down, and wealth inequality is worse than ever, and healthcare is still broken, and public education is under constant attack, and deregulated infrastructure is failing us. Do you want me to go on? This is supposed to be the end of the sermon. When does it get happy, Scott? And now do we, what, we, what do we want to talk about, my friends? Now that we know that all these things are still here 20, 30 years later, what do we want to talk about? Well, according to the leaders of this state and states like it, we want to talk about trans kids and drag queens. Are we really going to do this again? Because we know how this ends. We know how this ends with immeasurable damage done to trans kids and drag queens. Because that's why wealth inequality is not working. That's why healthcare is not working. That's why education is not working. Because we have to have a bad guy. 
We have to have someone upon whom we can thrust the legion because addressing our widespread suffering feels so overwhelming. We'd rather just identify someone that feels so much easier to deal with. And by deal with, we do mean damage because somehow that makes us feel safer. And somehow that makes us feel righteous. And then 20 years, 30 years go by and the same legion still occupies our land. The story of Jesus casting out legion in Gerasa is not about Jesus curing someone's mental health. That's my therapist and psychiatrist's job. I love Jesus, but he doesn't prescribe sertraline, okay? It's not even really about Jesus casting out demons. Ultimately, it's about what the community could do if they really wanted to. It's about the endless cycle of self-inflicted violence where we forget that the man is a part of this community and his suffering is our own. It's about our waking up to the natural tendency to blame one person or people when there is plenty of work to go around. It's about seizing the power and the opportunity to change things, not saving the world, but saving a community by leading from a position of intense care and empathy and connection when Legion wants us isolated and self-possessed and deeply afraid. And so, yeah, this story is weird and wild, and if we can lay down our fear of it and of each other, we'll find the gospel power to lift a community within. May it ever be so. Amen.